Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Phenotip Speaker Series. We have our 15th installment today, and I'm your host, Kira Deneen. Today, we're going to be diving into the future of cancer genetics. So we're going to be talking about all kinds of topics. We're going to kind of start with where we are currently, but also looking at the future of cancer genetics. To give you an overview of today's session, we're going to start by me interviewing our panelists here, and then we're gonna to get to your questions. So throughout the session, please submit your questions through the Zoom Q&A box, and then we will get to those at the end. But as you think of them, you know, jot them down, send them in, because um, we would really love to get to your questions. And I do want to mention that Phenotips is a complete solution for medical genetics. Phenotips provides software and services that ease genetic professionals' workflow. They provide tools like pedigree builders, human phenotype ontology capture, and diagnostic insights. As we all know, electronic health records aren't built for genetics, so Phenotips fills in the gaps by providing a unified and seamless genetic workflow. In light of the pandemic, Phenotips is sponsoring this speaker series so that we can connect with fellow genetic professionals throughout the world. So this has been just an incredible experience to be able to connect with all of you and answer your questions live, very different from a lot of other podcasts. And mentioning that, Phenotips is also available as a podcast now. Um, so you can search for it on there if that's how you'd like to digest your content. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Kira Deneen. I also host the DNA Today podcast. We have won the podcast award in science medicine for the last two years and have produced over 160 episodes in the last nine years. So if you enjoy today's webinar, the topics that we talk about, the level of detail that we dive into, please feel free to check out DNA Today. And I'm also a prenatal genetic counselor. But to get more importantly to our guests here today, we have two lovely guests and experts in genetics joining us. We have Dr. Banu Arun, who is the co-medical director of the Clinical Cancer Genetic Program at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And we also have, we also have Dr. Mark Robson, who is the chief of breast medicine service at Memorial Hospital. He's a member of the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Thank you both so much for joining us live today to talk about the future of cancer genetics. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I thought we would start out by talking about the current NCCN recommendations and providing a little bit of that background in case some people don't um, aren't as familiar with them. And then we can dive into a lot more details about the current and future state of cancer genetics. So what is the current NCCN recommendation on who should pursue genetic testing for hereditary cancer syndromes? Um, Dr. Arun, would you want to start with this? Yeah, I mean, you know, the uh, NCCN guidelines, when I started, I think, of course, I'm going to be exaggerating a little bit, was one pages, and now, you know, it's like <laughs> pages almost, uh, like any other NCCN guidelines right now. Um, I think to really boil it down to a very practical, um, you know, initial approach is that ideally we want to start testing affected individuals, obviously, if possible, you know, in the family, um, and then go with the youngest case if possible. And um, then obviously look at into the family history, but you know, there are certain tumor phenotypes that immediately stands out. Um, you know, triple negative breast cancer, um, now all metastatic breast cancer, metastatic prostate cancer, um, pancreas cancer. Um, however, the, um, I think, you know, one really should look into the, the detailed guidelines because, you know, there's some common sense that you can remember. And there are, you know, the other criteria where we build little chichi sheets for our clinics where everybody once in a while goes back. Uh, and checks. And I think another thing is that it, um, the guidelines keep changing. So what you have read six months ago might have changed. So a kind of updating yourself is, I think, important. Yeah, I think that's very well said. Dr. Robson, anything else to add to that? Um, just that you know, the NCCN guidelines don't you know speak to a number of different cancer predispositions, and, and they're all fundamentally designed to try to pick up high penetrance autosomal dominant predispositions. So Lynch syndrome, Lee-Fraumini, you know, the, the breast cancer syndromes. And um, so, so they're, they're trying to describe the kinds of family configurations that might 
be seen with a high penetrance predisposition. And then they're mashed up with the more characteristic phenotypes, for instance, you know, choroid plexus carcinoma for Lee or, or you know, triple negative breast cancer, like Dr. Arun mentioned. So they're, they're a bit of a combination that's evolved over time into, into a kind of weird animal. Um, Is there anything that you would like to see added to the NCCN guidelines that you feel like we're missing patients because there's a certain aspect that really should be added or that we should be questioning and testing more to see if that would be more inclusive of all patients, especially of patients of different ethnicities and being more inclusive on that front? I don't, you know, my own bias is that I don't think it's ethnicity related. I, I think the challenges with diversity and genetic testing are, are, are related to other factors besides the criteria themselves. I mean, sort of more social determinants than they are that the criteria should be different for different ethnicities or, or you know, genetic backgrounds, ancestry backgrounds. I, I think the, the challenge becomes really what are we trying to find? Um, because the NCCN guidelines are, are pretty good for identifying things like BRCA1, BRCA2, you know, high penetrance predispositions. Uh, they're not necessarily perfect, but, but they're good. And so the, the questions become, do they need to be perfect? Is it important to detect 100% of the BRCA mutation carriers or can we accept some small misrate or lack of sensitivity? And the other is, you know, which I'm sure we'll talk about more, are we gonna confine ourselves to high penetrance predispositions or are we going to start branching out? But the NCC and criteria as they are, at least for breast cancer, I'm not really familiar elsewhere, already encompass about 50% of patients with breast cancer. So, so it's not like they're particularly um, restrictive. And when it comes and of course, to, sorry, go ahead, Dr. Aron. <laughs> sorry, it also, you know, comes down to, you know, what are you going to do with the results? I think again, and I'm sure that question will come up. I mean, <clears throat> if you end up expanding and expanding, which we see every almost six months, it is. Um, I think what, what the implications of the results, I think that's the important part. Yeah, definitely a good preview of what we'll get into in terms of, all right, just because we're doing genetic testing, what does that actually impact in terms of clinical management for the patient? And in terms of genetic testing for people, as Dr. Arun mentioned, you know, usually we prefer to test in a family, someone that's had cancer before, especially in early age. Um, and Dr. Robson, Back in 2019, you presented at NSGC as part of a panel um, about breast cancer genetic testing. And one of the questions that came up was, should all people with breast cancer have genetic testing? And this has been a question that we've been debating for years and has kind of you know, shifted you know, over those years. What, what is your viewpoint? Has this changed since that presentation two years ago? I think that the point that the Dr. Arun made is, is important. The, the question is, what are you gonna do with the information? So, so if the person is like, again, sticking with breast cancer, somebody who has metastatic disease for whom you wanna consider a PARP inhibitor as a potential therapeutic option, it, it doesn't make sense in that setting to, to impose the kinds of criteria that we, you would use for risk assessment, right? And now, of course, in the early stage setting, high risk early stage setting, it, it's the same thing. And so if there is a direct treatment consequence, then I don't see barriers making sense. But right now, the only direct treatment consequences really are for BRCA1 and BRCA2. And the challenge, which, which I'm sure we will continue to investigate, is that it's functionally impossible to just test somebody for BRCA1 and BRCA2. So you pick up 98% of breast cancer, uh, BRCA1, BRCA2 mutations if you just cut off at age 65 and 40% of breast cancer occurs after that age. So, so at least from a cost-effectiveness standpoint, you do really well if you limit yourself by age, but you do miss moderate penetrance genes or fail to test for moderate penetrance genes. And, and that is to some people's eye a problem and to other people's eye not. So that's where the controversy lies. 
Dr. Arun, anything else to add to this? I know there's another level of this conversation of should we be doing population-based screening, which is even more than just everyone with breast cancer, um, which that's a little bit, little bit more of an aggressive approach. Um, but any, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you touched based on something, uh, especially related to population screening. I think, um, in, I think Dr. Dobson really covered it well, but what I wanted to add related to population screening is, um, you know, the, the issue might be um, what uh, um, to do um, when you have uninformative negatives. Um, so, you know, and most probably when we do population um, screening, um, most probably it's going to be without really counseling, um, consumer-directed testing. So that this whole discussion about um, what to do with the results, the expected results, and a uninformative negative, especially if you end up testing, you know, not the appropriate person in, in the family. I think that's well said in looking at the full picture of it, of not just, okay, can we find a bunch of people that have a genetic change that's increasing their risk for cancer, but like, how does that affect them? Um, when it comes to healthcare providers that are ordering this testing and ordering the genetic testing and choosing a lab, what should they keep in mind in terms of what aspects of a lab you know, I'm thinking like turnaround time, limitations of testing, like what should healthcare providers keep in mind that maybe are not ordering genetic testing as much as other providers or are new to it? Do you want? <laughs> <laughs> Either you want to want to take that one. <laughs> I don't know, but do you want to take it? I, I, I can start. Um, I mean, I think, you know, we, we have the luxury of having several companies um, uh, available to, to, to choose from. Um, I think, again, it goes back to, you know, in what setting you are uh, requesting it. So if it's for, you know, pre-surgical or um, uh, management, you know, you, you want the results right away. And uh, sometimes our genetic counselors, for example, choose by turnaround time, you know, insurance coverage. So there are actually multiple factors. I think um, in terms of technology, I think, you know, um, you know, they are, they are all, um, you know, very similar and, and accurate. However, um, I think there are these little clinical details that can, that can help choose one over the other. Um, I don't know, Mark, if you wanted to add something. Um, the only thing I'll add is, is that there's, a, there are a few, um, offerings that are beyond the, the big, genetic testing companies and, and I think we all know who the, the big ones are but the the there are occasionally cases where you'll have kind of local labs trying to do things um, because next generation sequencing is quite honestly not that complicated I mean you know most academic centers can probably do it the challenge becomes variant curation and, and there are um electronic offerings, sort of, you know, decision aids that are just software plugs. And if you don't set the, if you don't set the levers right, you can get a wrong answer. And I can tell an anecdote about a, a woman who we got off the runway with K3326X because, you know, she'd been called pathogenic at a, one of these small labs because they basically forgot to flip a switch. And, it was just a miracle that we caught it before she had her prophylactic mastectomy. So, so I think if you stick with the big ones, you'll be all right. And if you kind of are doing it outside of that context, you have to look a little bit more deeply into their, uh, their quality control measures and curation measures. And when we do have VUS has come up, unfortunately, this is happening quite often. I mean, how should this be evaluated in terms of how often we should check back if it is a true VUS, how often patients should check back or healthcare providers on if it's been reclassified? Um, and where does that responsibility lie? Is it with the patients or is it with the healthcare providers? Um, Dr. Arun, did you wanna provide some insight on this? Yeah, I can get started. I think that is a very important question that comes you know, in the clinical setting. Um, 
I think I want to say that there's really no standard of care approach, unfortunately, right now. There's no you know, systematic um, approach where everybody does the same thing. So that means you know, everybody and each institution has have their, developed their own practical guidelines or workflow, if you will. Um, we, for example, um, um, stay obviously in, in, in touch with the companies. So updates come to our genetic counselors. And many of our patients remain our patients, long-term patients, um, our cancer patients, because of the nature of our institution. And I'm sure it's similar with Dr. Robson as well. Uh, so there's this, this communication flowing um, where we really don't have to go back and, and, and check. If we notice that a patient hasn't been seen for some time and um, we haven't heard from the labs, um, we, we periodically check, but usually we, we, we get informed. Um, but the, the, the obviously the, the, the issue is a widespread, you know, it's a widespread cons, um, issue. And um, unfortunately there is no standard. And um, I think a lot of institutions or smaller practices are doing a hybrid where um, hopefully the provider tells the patient, you know, these VOSs can get upgraded. Um, let's remind each other, I'll check with the lab. So in some cases, I think the lab um, uh, reaches out to the provider or the, the patient asks. Um, so it's, it's, I think, a hybrid form, but it's not an optimal form, obviously. Yeah, and, and I work in prenatal, so I'm not directly in cancer, but obviously sometimes that comes up and, you know, patients will ask me like, how often should I check back? Um, and so recently I've been saying six months, do you think that that's a, a good recommendation? Should it be more frequent, less frequent? Um, th that is a good question. We um, just uh, analyze our internal data, which is not published yet, but I can just tell you in, in, in general, we um, looked at the data, not only our but for um, community practicing sites in the US and uh, the uh, VUS reclassification rate. Now, I cannot go into details right now, it's not published, but what we've seen is that the reclassification um, percentage is much more you know, frequent over the last several years compared to uh, more than five years ago. So I think I want to say at least once a year if not every six months, because of the technology and the increasing data, right? It's, it's um, you know, the more data comes in, the more uh, the classifications are easier, in addition to all of the, you know, other technology uh, advancements. So uh, at least once a year, and if you can do six months, you know, that's, that's fine too. But again, there is no written rule. But what I can say is that um, the, the updates uh, and the reclassifications are happening more frequently uh, over the last three years compared to the prior three years, at least in our data set. That is like a little representation from different geographical areas in the US. And Dr. Robson, to bring you into this, um, do you think that we're gonna get guidelines at some point? Because obviously VUS has been an issue for years. And you know, as we've been talking about, we kind of say, well, this is what we think we should do. And it's kind of clinic by clinic, but do you think we're going to have like NCCN or maybe part of it um, of saying, okay, yes, like patients should are referred to check back in on you know, this many months, a year, um, or like you know, on the healthcare provider side, they are supposed to give an update to patients or check in with labs, or are we gonna see this in the future, you think? I very much doubt that there'll be a, a policy statement around it because it could potentially leave people exposed and, and you know, likelihood of that is not good. I mean, if somebody doesn't necessarily read like a, you know, ACSG or, you know, something like that ACMG statement, then, you know, they could be getting in trouble. So, so, so I don't think documentation of standard of care is likely. I, I think you know, although reclassification is getting a little bit better, I mean, my experience, and I don't know if this is Dr. Arun's experience, is that it still tends to be more downgrading than upgrading. And, and so, you know, the importance of notifying somebody of a downgrade, if you've counseled them appropriately up front, is kind of limited, right? If you've told them not to use this information for, for decision making and, um, and just screen or, or take action based on family history, then the fact that they've been downgrading shouldn't have an impact. Upgrades, 
I, you know, I, I think it's hard. And if we think broadly, I mean, you know, we're all experienced people. I mean, Dr. Aaron and I work at major centers and, and you know, have large numbers of genetic counselors who do this exclusively. But, but if you think about the practitioner who's in the middle of the country who basically just ordered this on his own or her own, expecting that person to be able to, to manage reclassification and check ClinVar or bracket challenge or whatever they want to check and make a decision that now they should notify that that feels like an unfair expectation. So, so the laboratory should be communicating upgrades to the ordering physician. And I think an annual check-in by the patient is probably fine. Of course, if you find something, if you do get an upgrade, then you should reach out before then. But, but otherwise I think, I don't think we should be assuming the responsibility for, for tracking all of these. And you mentioned earlier the case that you had where you were able to intervene on someone that was about to get a risk-reducing surgery because of a VUS. Unfortunately, this happens more often than it should. It's it's very scary to hear just how many people that you know are found to have a VUS and have a risk-reducing surgery from that. How can we reduce this from happening of people having these unnecessary surgeries? I mean, we've been trying to educate people for 25 years. I mean, you know, we've been trying to assure people that VUS doesn't mean you should act. And, and I think that there's just, unfortunately, among some people, particularly those who are perhaps a little less experienced with genetic testing, or, you know, it's just kind of when there's smoke, there must be fire kind of attitude. And, and then the, the patients themselves, sometimes bring that attitude as well, right? Especially if they haven't had good post-test genetic counseling, they may themselves actually bring that, you know, that anxiety to it and, and just want to be, quote, safe rather than sorry, end quote. You know? So it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to combat that mindset of, of risk avoidance because you can't tell them that it won't be upgraded. And, you know, if you've seen it in two family members who had breast cancer and you, know, you can explain the genetics till the cows come home, the person may just think, you know, I don't want to take a chance. Yeah, I think that's a good point as well. Dr. Arun, what do you have to add here? Yeah, I, I just wanted to add the patient perspective, uh, I think is very important in VUS also. If you think about um, um, breast cancer patients, especially in the U.S. with unilateral breast cancer, even in the absence of any germline mutation, not only VUS, they choose to undergo double mastectomies. So, I mean, if a, if a patient uh, with, you know, curable small one-sided breast cancer chooses to do double mastectomies just without a mutation, uh, you can imagine that hearing about the VUS, uh, even though they are told we don't know, know the functionality and whether it's a disease causing change, it's not that difficult for those very motivated patients to just uh, decide for these um, mastectomies. I think it might be interesting and important to see what makes them make that decision. Is it the VUS or is it just the breast cancer and they don't want to have contralateral breast cancer? We don't have that data, but I think in some of the VUS cases where we hear about these surgeries, it's, it's, it, it might not be the VUS actually, you know, the. Uh, the, the actually the desire to prevent a future new cancer. Now, of course, that does not um, answer the, the, the rare unfortunate cases where some patients even undergo preventive ophorectomies. Very rarely we have seen that also and hoping that it, it is not happening often. Yeah, I think that's important to always keep in mind the, the patient perspective and see what other factors are playing a role because say, you know, their mother or aunt or someone had breast cancer and had that VUS in their mind, they're like, well, you know, it really could be related. And even if there is such a small chance, that's a choice that they're making. So certainly in some cases, maybe that is in the patient's best interest. And, you know, it would be interesting to see a study of like, you know, of that, of VUS is like, what are the other factors that are playing a role in that decision-making. <laughs> Maybe someone out there could do a study on that. Um, but the other question I had with BUSs, which we kind of touched on a little bit earlier, is 
you know, the, the racial disparity with VUSs and detection rates, you know, especially for people of non-European descent. I don't know if either of you have any thoughts on how we can, you know, work towards eliminating these disparities. Obviously, a lot of genetic testing and, and our databases are based primarily of people of European descent, um, but this is a, a major problem in genetics. And just if either of you have any thoughts on how we can continue to eliminate this. So it's, it's an interesting question, and I think it's a multifactorial problem. Um, you know, there, there's just a simple observation that there aren't enough people of non-European ancestry being tested to build up an experience of, of basically allele frequency to kind of help you exclude pathogenicity. Um, you know, Ambry, one of the big companies published a, a review of their... Um, of their multi-gene panel testing, like 165,000 individuals tested, and, and only six and a half percent were of self-reported African ancestry. And, and so that's about half, maybe less than half of the, the population frequency. So clearly, you know, there are disparities, but they they may be economic as much as as much as they are racial or, or you know ancestry-based. Um, because you know, Alison Curian did a study also looking at it in the SEER databases in Georgia and California, and she actually didn't find a difference in, in prevalence of testing by, by self-declared race, but did find um, differences by, by residents in poverty tracts, right? So, so poor people just didn't get access. And then there's, there's among some subpopulations, particularly the African-American subpopulation, there's just a phenomenal amount of mistrust, right? I mean, they don't necessarily have access to the same types of genetic counseling, particularly if they're in safety net hospitals or something like that, which isn't, you know, it's not fair to say that that's necessarily where African ancestry folks get care, but clearly, you know, a number do. And then, so they don't get genetics explained to them well, and there's just a little bit of mistrust that, you know, is this research and what are you doing? And I think that plays in as well. Anything else to add to that, Dr. Aaron? Um, no, I think Dr. Robson really covered it really well. Yeah, yeah, it, I think that there's a lot more work we need to do in this area. Yeah. Yep. Um, and touching back to you know what we've talked about before in terms of you know what we're actually doing with clinical management based on genetic testing results, we've kind of been dancing around this. So to jump into it. Um, as we've mentioned, there's different genes and even variants can have various cancer risks. So some may have a 20% risk of, you know, we've been using breast cancer as an example and others might, you know, have up to an 85% risk. Um, how, how does this change clinical management? Is there like a magic number in terms of when we would recommend certain management, you know, in terms of their lifetime risk of breast cancer? Um, Dr. Arun, if you wanted to start kind of providing a little bit of just background on this. Yeah, I think, you know, again, we circle back to the, to the guidelines uh, because um, at least it has some type of quantification um, because when we especially um, are trying to talk about the cutoffs and what to do with the, with, with um, we need to have some type of reference that can be communicated to, um, you know, wider commu communities. Um, if we do everything just case-based, then the discussions will be all over and, you know, we have to find a, somehow a minimum uh, agreed upon, you know, threshold. So for, again, breast cancer example, you know, if lifetime risk is 20% or higher, for example, you know, we know that we can um, offer um, MRI screening uh, in addition to mammograms. Um, but again, you know, it depends on the concept. So if you <clears throat> have a patient with a palpy 2 or BRC mutation, then, um, you know, the recommendations are considering, you know, encouraged to do the MRIs. Um, but if you have a check 2 mutation, it's, again, the lifetime risk is more than 20%, but it's a softer recommendation. So we have the cutoff of 20%, but I think it depends on the, on the, on the clinical scenario, obviously with check 2 um, the language is a little bit softer, but because it's greater than 20% and it's somehow mentioned in the guidelines, 
a lot of people don't differentiate and just just do it. But I, for example, discuss it with my older, you know, check to mutation carriers that it's an it's an option out there, and not everybody needs an MRI. But um, I, I think from the practical approach, whether we agree it's nineteen percent or twenty three and a half percent or twenty seven percent, I think it's good to have a number because I think the insurance goes by that as well, and at least there is um, some type of agreement amongst any type of provider in any type of setting, academic or, or private or smaller community places. Yeah, I think, and you also bring up a, a good point with the insurance side, at least in the US, of if people do have genetic testing that shows that there is an increased risk for breast cancer, insurance is more likely to kick in and cover more surveillance. Um, Dr. Robson, anything else to add to this? Um... I mean, it's another, like everything here, there's a lot of complexity and nuance, right? So the 20% threshold is, is just an arbitrary number that was pulled out of thin air by the American Cancer Society back in the 1990s. Um, and like much that's gone on with this whole field, there was sort of, the guidelines followed the clinical observations, right? I mean, people said, okay, MRI works, who should we use it in? And somebody just picks out a thin air. Well, how about 20% risk? You know, and, and that's how it gets started. And, and same thing with NCCN guidelines for moderate penetrance mutations, right? We're finding moderate penetrance mutations and people say, well, what should we do? And say, well, NCCN says do this. So, so it's not driven by evidence of efficacy, but it is what it is. We've got it. My sense is that there's, there's, a couple of different categories. There are people who have clear high penetrance autosomal dominant predispositions. And again, I, I, I zoom out beyond just breast and think about colon and, and other disorders, colon in particular. And for them, it's pretty obvious what to do. You know, you, you follow high risk screening guidelines. And quite frankly, for those people, if the syndrome is, is enough of a predisposition, surgery becomes an appropriate option. And then at the other end, or in the middle, I guess, of the spectrum, you have these so-called moderate penetrance variants, which confer considerably lower risks. And, you know, we say two to five-fold, but the fact is most of them are around two-fold. And I emphasize those are two-fold average risks because the, the risk associated with alterations in these genes are much more subject to modification by other factors like polygenic background and you know, quantitative risk factors, mammographic density, such that there are certainly people, even though they have an average risk of 20 or greater percent, probably personally have a lower risk and perhaps even a lower risk than population. So you can't take that one size fits all. And in general, in the absence of a strong family history that suggests this autosomal dominant predisposition, you wouldn't want to do surgery either, right? And then you have another category of genes that, which wind up on these huge 80, 90 gene panels, which, which aren't necessarily even clearly associated with cancer risk at all. Um, you know, some study has shown an, an increased risk, which has not necessarily been verified in other studies, and it just kind of winds up on there. And for them, you probably shouldn't take any incremental action, period. Uh, you should just treat people on the basis of family history and age. So the biggest challenge for me is, is what's, is there a threshold for surgery? And we were talking about this, I think, when we were talking about the contralateral mastectomy problem. And, you know, surgery, quite frankly, is a personal utility decision. You know, there's some talk about contralateral mastectomy improving outcomes in BRCA, but I don't think that's a generalizable observation. So who's to say what the threshold should be? I think, as you said, that is a very personal decision, and that's why we need healthcare providers to sit down and talk through all of this information. So patients are really, you know, a major part of that decision making. And we're not saying, oh, anybody that has this risk, they should get the surgery. Like it's it's going to be a case by case. And another aspect of this, we've been talking about, you know, family history and then specific genetic mutations. But there's a whole other level to this with polygenic risk scores that have really been becoming much more popular, not only in, in the cancer realm, but just in general. Um, you know, when we're looking at cancer risk models, they've started being incorporated. Dr. Arun, what do you think is the clinical utility of the polygenic risk scores? Is there one now? Is this more in the future? Like, where are we at right now with polygenic risk scores and, and using them? Yeah. So, I mean, 
I think I will take a little bit more conservative stand here. I think um, it will really help in the future fine tuning the risk um, and um, inform us about whether a plant intervention will work. I think that is the that is the missing part right now. Um, you know, we we have the technology. Um, I think the calibration, especially how the results will impact an intervention, such as chemo prevention, for example. Um, you know, if these patients with a certain polygenic score um, take tamoxifen, are we reducing their risk of breast cancer? That is important. Or whether, you know, those risk scores can help with surgical decision-making, for example. So it, it needs to provide us with a, a fine-tuning information um, and help with the challenges that we face in the clinic. Because yes, tamoxifen is you know, indicated for, to discuss for chemo prevention, we discuss preventive surgeries, we discuss increased imaging um, or frequency of imaging or MRI modalities, but the, the, it's all in the, the, the devil is in the details. So which patients are the ones that will actually benefit from that. And I think that information right now is not available. I think that's my um, my, my only concern right now, but um, if that data is in, then I think it can really help with fine tuning and maybe personalizing the interventions for um, to manage risk. So that's more on, on the future side from your perspective. Dr. Robson, you agree? You think yeah. we should be using this now? I, you know, I, I, I'm more, kind of intellectually convinced by the, the polygenic risk scores. I mean, there's been a huge amount of work done developing the, the both empiric data regarding risk and the, the actual data regarding combination and what their effects are on modifying risk. And, and it's, it's, you know, it's very clear that the effect is real in, in particular circumstances. It's, been shown that the risk is independent or largely independent of, of the other risk models that we're used to using. And, you know, true calibration studies are coming out now using combination scores. So the challenge is that, that we don't believe them, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, you have somebody who comes in who's got a minimal family history and you get their polygenic risk score and they don't have a rare variant, but still the polygenic risk score tells you that their risk is 35 to 40%. And we just don't want to believe that. Um, and we also don't want to de-escalate care if they do have a family history or, or say they do have a rare check two variant and the combined score tells us that their risk is actually less than 20%. We don't want to quote unquote deny them a, a um, deny them a, a, an MRI. So, so I don't think the problem is with the science. I think the problem is one of, of how do you get people comfortable using it? And particularly for the folks who actually have particularly high polygenic risk scores, you know, that is worrisome. But, you know, 5% of the population is going to be above two standard deviations, right? I mean, that's just the way it works. So some people are going to have high scores when you do it that way. And perhaps more breast cancer comes about in those people than actually comes about in, in the rare variant carrier. Um, yeah, that's, that's interesting just to look at, okay, well, polygenic risk score, how many people are being picked up from that versus like these moderate penetrant, you know, gene mutations that we've been talking about. Um, so it seems like in the, in the near future, maybe we'd be incorporating that a little bit more, but that, I don't know if we're going to get to a point of just doing polygenic risk scores alone. I think we're always going to be combining it with hopefully family history and these other, you know, autosomal dominant uh, genetic mutations that we've been talking about. And, and the other aspect that we've mentioned is doing, you know, obviously germline testing, we've been talking about a lot, but the other side of it is doing somatic genetic testing to see, okay, is there any, like, what are the genetic changes in the cancer and how does that affect, um, you know, care? When is it appropriate to order both germline and somatic genetic testing. Is there times we're just doing somatic genetic testing? Dr. Arun, do you have any thoughts on that? 
I think the um, you know indications and um, also partially obviously implications of the results are, are different. I think one has to really differentiate like what what information do you want to get from from the test. So I want to mention that if um, you know if you do if your intention is germline testing, then you do only germline testing. But if your intention is to do somatic testing, that automatically actually comes with the germline testing too. So you know that you can do the calling. So um, that, that part is a little bit more complicated. But um, the the indications for the somatic testing, if it's pure somatic, is currently it's mostly metastatic, you know, advanced cancers for therapeutic implications. And the indications for that is, you know, it's it's a whole other discussion, but um, you know, since you are focusing on your patient, on, on, on your patient's management, um, and now we have a targetable um, um, uh, mutations and agents available, I think any, any metastatic, you know, cancer patient, and I'm now talking beyond breast cancer, actually, you know, uh, mostly used beyond breast cancer anyway, and breast cancer is now, you know, up and coming, um, any metastatic patient, uh, for either standard of care, targeted therapies, uh, or clinical trial enrollments in phase one, phase two trials, and now some phase three trials as well. Um, uh, it should be considered for those. Um, where the convergence of with germline and genetics come in is, you know, the incidental findings, of course, um, that then uh, ideally requires reflex um, germline testing, clinical germline testing to to confirm. Um, right now, the germline testing does not have any major therapeutic implications for many cancers, except for BRCA, um, for PARP inhibitors for um, uh, some solid tumors, um, but, but the rest really will be germline information for the family. But that is where they really you know, intersect. And, um, and that raises the next question. I'm sure you know it will come up where you'll ask us, um, like, how do you then, uh, manage the process, you know, a, uh, an oncologist um, seeing a metastatic lung cancer patients just focus on targeted, you know, therapies, and all of a sudden there is an incidental BRC mutation. Uh, and then, you know, that oncologist has to shift his or her whole uh, attention and discussion a little bit towards the germline and family and clinical testing and support. So, um, so that raises, of course, like how do you manage, you know, this information through a process fast also, because, you know, the treatment still has to happen. Um, but then now you have the family also. Uh, so those are, I, I don't think there's the best way to do it, but, you know, those are the issues that are discussed with the uh, genetics um, and germline or somatic, you know, genetic discussion. Yeah, it certainly brings up just so much because you don't know what you're going to find. It's not necessarily like, oh, you know, we're, we're finding this change and that's just going to mean we're doing this medication. As you said, incidental findings come up all the time. And, you know, are these patients really getting the proper pretest counseling to know that that can come up? Because certainly I think if they're meeting with a genetics healthcare provider, I would say they are, but maybe they're not. So I think that that brings up a, a good point with that. Um, Dr. Robson, anything else to add in terms of like somatic versus germline testing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, I don't think that this is that complicated, honestly. I mean, I, I, for patients with advanced disease, um, you know, and you can define that however you want, depending on the disease site, in my view is that everybody should have, you know, paired tumor normal sequencing at that time. And you can do it. You know, we've been doing this routinely here now for, for several years with, you know, we, I can't remember how many thousand people. I mean, we're somewhere up around 15,000 people. And, you know, the number of people who've asked for pretest genetic counseling is like one, maybe two. Um, and the way we do it is we do tumor normal sequencing as our, as our standard way of tumor court characterization. It's not an incidental finding. We explicitly consent patients to germline with a very brief introductory video. And then if there is a finding, the um, primary care doctor basically tells the patient, there's a finding and then hands them off over to the genetics team to do the post-test counseling and family expansion. And, and you know, I think that this can be done in a number of different ways. I mean, it can be supported. I mean, we have obviously are able to support it internally, but, it, but if you're somewhere else in the country, it could be supported remotely. 
you know, because you just need to jack somebody into a genetic counseling network so that they can get the post-test education and then have their family members directed towards testing. So, and, and you know, it, it's been very successful for us. I, I, we have not had, you know, we haven't had any experiences with people feeling, you know, dramatically upset about finding something or, or as a matter of fact, they've been pretty grateful that with their metastatic disease, they haven't had to go through the whole you know, genetic counseling pretest process, which can be quite burdensome for somebody who's very sick. And, you know, we find germline alterations in about 17 to 18% of all patients with advanced metastatic disease and not necessarily just those who, who you might expect based on phenotype. You know, fully half of those are in people who wouldn't have been tested based on phenotype or family history. So I think that this will happen. It's just a matter of, again, getting people around to it. Yeah, I think that's well said. And that interesting that you're, you know, your institution's taking advantage of different service delivery models that you said patients will watch an informative video before doing the testing. Then if something comes up in that, where you said a little less than 20% of patients meeting with a genetic counselor at that point, just for, you know, it sounds like efficiency, but also like they're getting the information they're, they're watching the video. So they're still being informed at that point. Um, what other alternative service delivery models do you think are, are, really effective with cancer genetics. I mean, there's so many out there now with chatbots and group genetic counseling, you know, I, <laughs> I mean, there's just... the chat box works. So I'll tell you, when the chatbot first came out, I, I went to one of the companies that was rolling out a chatbot and, and I just decided to play with it a little bit. And so I go, hi, I signed up for an account and I'm going through it all. Yeah. I know. And I said, so what happens if I feel like killing myself after getting my test? you know, this test has different meanings for different people. <laughs> like, no, no, seriously, I'm kind of depressed. Should I get this right. test? You know, and, and it was just useless. I mean, it was, it was completely useless. I mean, yeah, on the human right. emotion side, I don't know how good it, maybe like the information side might be okay, but right. Yeah. But the actual counseling side, it, it's not particularly useful. <laughs> anyway, yeah. it, that's my kind of thing is to mess with AI, but <laughs> yeah. um, we've all done it. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but you know, I think the remote counseling model is a good one. Um, it's, you know, remote work in general is kind of becoming more of a thing. And, and I guess the main barrier to this is cross-state cross line licensing, right? Um, which, of course, is a problem for physician telehealth as well. But you know, if you had a model, I mean, and there are companies that do this where they, they basically have counselors who are signed up to, to participate in kind of a part-time type of model. And, and then they can uh, try to pair people with appropriate licensure to get this stuff delivered. And, you know, I, I think it works fine for most people. I don't think it necessarily has to be hand-to-hand -hand in person. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the pandemic has really changed just the, the ability of people being able to access telehealth. Um, Dr. Arun, anything else to add in terms of service delivery models if you're also not a fan of chatbots or yeah i mean the the, the chat box we are not very familiar to be honest you know i i did not do that little test drive like now i'm intrigued you know i want to do that but um what what i wanted to go back to that dr robson mentioned you know the, the video is also a uh you know a, an alternative that you can use we at our institution uh, actually uh, have implemented several different models. We do the traditional face-to-face. -face. Uh, we do, of course, uh, the, the remote, which we had started before the pandemic with some of our satellite sites, um, telegenetics with, with or without videos, so a phone or video, um, which then turned into during COVID into a real video visit. Um, but then we also have the, uh, without the counselor, um, pre-testing, uh, watching video counseling information, and um, especially in um, high volume, low uh, hanging fruit clinics, for example, testing all metastatic prostate cancer patients in the GU centers. So we actually had implemented that several years ago, patients watch a video, uh, we had recorded it in English and Spanish, um, and then by our genetic counselors team. Uh, we updated it every two years or as needed. Um, and then um, since 
taking your family history for those indications is not very, very crucial. Um, after watching the video, the, the patient could ask for a traditional uh, genetic counseling visit, but almost none of them did and agreed and signed consent for the testing. And then we would do the back-end counseling with um, the counselor for positives or VUSs. So uh, we, we somehow have multiple modalities in different clinics based on, on need and turnaround time. And, um, um, and, and we will continue trying to explore these models. And some of them can be then um, uh, used as uh, examples for other setting outside our, our institution. Yeah, definitely. I think when you think about just during a genetic counseling session, how much of it is spent just explaining concepts that could be maybe even better done in a video where you have aids, things are moving, patients are engaged a little bit more. Um, that just seems to kind of make sense with that model. Dr. Robson, what else do you have to have? I was just going to riff on this a little bit because Dr. Aaron said something I think is very important, which is that you can fit the delivery model to the purpose. Right. So, so, you know, metastatic prostate cancer, newly diagnosed ovarian cancer, you know, triple negative breast cancer. I mean, you know, you don't necessarily need a lot of interaction for most patients to get the testing done. Um, our big experience that I describe is largely with metastatic cancer. I think that's a very different thing than the young woman who wants to have a conversation because she has a family history. Right. I mean, I, I think that that still is very much a traditional, um, a traditional model. And the d dividing line for me is therapeutic implication versus personal utility. You know, I mean, direct therapeutic implication versus personal utility. And I, I still think that if you are largely doing things for personal utility, yes, screening, but, but mainly it's does somebody wanna know then the traditional counseling model should still be employed and the others really should be concentrated on, on these therapeutic settings. Kind of seeing that there's multiple tracks that could be taken. It's like, okay, this patient fits this track. Let's have them do this. Like watch the video. If they have questions, meet with the genetic counselor, others, maybe skip that, as you said. Um, so kind of adapt it to whatever the situation is. And, you know, I think patients appreciate too, and they have a little bit less appointments of, okay, watch this video instead of booking an appointment, you have to be somewhere in person, parking, getting there, taking time off from work. Um, definitely a lot of, lot of factors with that. Um, and I'm going to get to our audience questions in just a couple minutes. So make sure everybody that you are popping your questions into the Q and a box here in zoom. Um, and I'm excited to get to those questions, but before I do. I wanted to ask you guys, what else are the major barriers of cancer genetics that we're currently facing? Is there anything we haven't talked about yet that is really an issue in the field that, you know, we need to be working on that healthcare providers need to be aware of, or just what you've experienced in the field, any issues that you see maybe on the horizon? Um, Dr. Arun, anything strike your mind when thinking about this? Yeah, I, I think we maybe didn't discuss a lot. I think we maybe touched base a little bit, but, um, the whole germline world is, and the guidelines, there is so much information coming in, whether it's technologies, um, indications, what to do with the results, um, what other genes are added to the panel. So I think one important aspect, which is a whole other, I think, discussion is how to disseminate this information to healthcare providers. And we have to think beyond oncologists, of course. And we have been saying this you know, for a long time, um, internists, gynecologists, I mean, wherever the patients are, you know, um, are being either counseled or, or getting the testing. Um, you know, there, there are some studies, we have done some where uh, genetic testing uh, or screening is implemented in mammography centers, for example, because when women come in for, for screening or primary care offices, for example, but how do you, reach out to these or disseminate the, the, the knowledge. And it's a dynamic thing, right? It's, it keeps changing um, to these healthcare providers, especially primary care when, you know, so much is changing. I mean, um, you know, all of the guidelines and cardiovascular and smoking cessation and everything, they deal with so many, you know, algorithms and um, uh, guidelines and indications. I think that, that, is, that is an area that I think we have to do work on. There's so much to 
be keeping healthcare providers updated on, especially as you said, like in a GP setting, they have so much to keep up with. This small area of genetic testing is not going to be maybe top on their list. Um, so yeah, I think that that highlights a lot of a lot of the, the current barriers that we're facing. Anything else, Dr. Robson, that you think of? You know, I, so I, I don't know why I'm feeling sort of provocative today, but but I think that- We love it, go for it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's sort of, you know, Dr. Aaron has been around me a lot to know that when you have me on a call for more than 30 minutes, I start getting kind of rambunctious. So so um, I actually think that we're, we're just making it too complicated, that, that if we just did genetic and genomic characterization of cancer patients, with cancer genetics backup, genetic counseling backup to interpret results, and then use that to cascade into families. Um, you know, you know the, the upfront oncology teams and, and to a lesser extent, the surgical teams are educable in terms of you know, cancer genetics, particularly if they have genetic counselors there to, to help interpretation of results. And then you know, a cascade approach as opposed to a population screening approach you know, avoids many of the problems that, that you're alluding to in terms of, you know, undereducation, lack of time on the primary care part, you know, risk of circumventing informed consent for the unaffected. You know, can you imagine a, a world, you know, population screening? How do you do population screening? Every woman on her 25th birthday at her GYN appointment gets a panel set. I mean, is that what it's going to be? I mean, I don't think so. But on the other hand, every woman at their GYN appointment at age 25 is not going to get referred to a genetic counselor for a discussion. So, so the, the, the more effective way in is to have the cancer patient be the, the index point and just relax the testing criteria for the cancer patients and then move it forward from there. So that's my radical proposal. <laughs> just simplify it. Just just have take it be it, a just, little bit less complicated with the one from column a three from column b you know if it's thursday then they can get genetic testing and just work it from the cancer standpoint yeah and then if if, peop, if there is a genetic variant identified in a patient that's pathogenic then then cascade testing as you're saying of, of testing other individuals in the family right and and have the you know concentrate the the, the genetics resources on those people, not on the upfront screening of large numbers of people, most of whom are not going to have variants, right? Yeah, I, th I think that makes sense. And taking advantage of like the videos that we've been talking about and, and different ways to educate that are not putting a strain on healthcare providers as much too. Um, so I want to jump into some questions that we have. We have some that were previously submitted and some submitted in the moment. So if you're listening right now or watching um, and you have questions, feel free to pop them in the Q&A box. We're going to get to as many as we can in the next 15 minutes here. Um, so our first question is, with, with the current situation presented by both speakers about overeager patients, what are your thoughts on utilizing personal health records that improves access to personal genetic information, but may perhaps have unintended consequences where patients take unnecessary risks? I don't know if either of you have thoughts on this. So, so you know, the patient is not going to be able to do her own mastectomy. Right. So, so just because she has access to the information, somebody else has to participate in the unnecessary risk. And I don't think, you know, personally withholding that information from him or her, I mean, we keep talking about her, but, but it can be both, is, is necessary in order to avoid harm. What's necessary is to make sure the surgeon doesn't do harm. And anything else to add to that, Dr. Aru? No, I think I, I agree. I mean, you know, knowledge, um, I, I think patients have, have their rights to, to have access all the time. And um, if, if not given because of the fear that it might be overused, that's the wrong thing, then that, you know, there's a problem and that needs to be solved and not just, you know, not having access. I don't think that's a solution. Yeah, definitely. And another question we have is how can healthcare providers stay updated on the changes in cancer genetics? Do you have any resources to recommend? Because as we've been talking about, there is just so many changes. I mean, with NCCN guidelines every six months, uh, it seems like from my perspective that they're being updated. Um, so any other resources to look at in terms of just knowing what's going on with cancer genetics and especially just the big headlines? 
I mean, it's, it's just, you know, what we discussed a few minutes ago, you know, I'm presenting the complicated, you know, path and Dr. Robson just, you know, offering this, let's just make it simple. <laughs> but I mean, um, you know, there are obviously, um, you know, several resources, I mean, NCCN, ASCO, genetic societies. I mean, I mean, it's out there, but the, the, the problem is that um, how do you access it fast enough and, you know, keep you know staying updated all the time I think that's the thing because um and you know and the guidelines and the information varies sometimes you know from place to place then you have to compare this to that you know the USPSTF guidelines are a little bit different you know than the others so it, it, I think it's all time I mean you know um, healthcare providers, you know, we are, we are smart people. We know, but it's, it's, it's the time and how to implement that in your everyday busy life. So let's make it simple. Like Mark said, <laughs> make it simple. I think that's the theme for today's <laughs> webinar. Um, any other resources to add there, Dr. Robson? No, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure that it, you know, the expectation is fair. I, I mean, cancer genetics, I mean, it, if you start rolling in somatic cancer genetics as well as germline cancer genetics, I mean, this is a this is a hugely comp complicated and exponentially growing field. Uh, and and it, it's a specialized field of knowledge, just like, you know, thoracic oncology is a specialized field of knowledge or, or colorectal oncology is. You know, I don't understand how general oncologists keep up with everything that's going on now. It just seems impossible to me. And so I think what the what the generalists, whether they be an oncologist or not, just has to recognize is, is sort of when should somebody go get some help, right? And so for the unaffected person, my sense is that it probably should just be if they're interested. You know, if they have a family history and they're interested in learning about it, we should have ways that they learn in graded fashion, you know, perhaps with like some sort of video to start with and then referral to genetic counseling afterwards. And as I said, for the affected, I just think we should have a very low threshold for testing and, uh, it, but with appropriate backup, which is what I really want to emphasize. You can't just do it and assume that the person's going to know what to do with the answer. You have to have appropriate backup. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and another question is CRISPR is a game changer when it comes to genetic editing. How has this technology been used in cancer? Are there any notable clinical trials so far, or is this more in the future? Yeah, I think it's in the future. I mean, as good as CRISPR is for laboratory experiments, I'm not so sure that it's ready for people experiments. Um, I mean, there, there are work, there's work going on right now uh, of doing ex vivo CRISPR for gene editing and then, you know, implantation of stem cells or, or things like that to try to resolve things like hemophilia or, or certain rare disorders where you don't have to have a whole lot of product. But, but you know, the, the, the problem with CRISPR is in order for it to work, you're going to have to do it on an embryo, which, which introduces a huge number of ethical considerations not to mention just the technical ones and making sure that it goes right. So, yeah, we certainly saw that. What was that? December, 2019, I think with the um, CRISPR babies out of, out of China, the twins. Um, and yeah, definitely a lot of, lot of implications there when we're talking about the embryo level. Um, any other thoughts, uh, Dr. Arun on CRISPR and genetic editing when it comes to like clinical trials? Yeah, I, I think as, as Dr. Robson said, I mean, it, it's really a very advanced but new technology. So implementing it into um, genetics, um, germline or genomics, you know, will take some time. Yeah, I think so. It's, I think it's a good thing mm -hmm. to keep our eye on. Um, right, right now, it's more, more on that scale. Um, and another question is, with clinical trials, do most clinical trials for different cancer therapies do they require that people have done genetic testing in order to get into the clinical trials? Can you guys provide a little bit more background on just the inclusion, inclusion criteria for clinical trials? I mean, I, I, I can start. Um, so it depends on the clinical trials. So they are um, not all of them, obviously, but they are now recently more and more clinical trials for all solid tumors that... Um, most of them require um, somatic testing, especially if 
uh, the trial is about targeted agents. Um, that's happening more and more compared to traditional chemotherapeutic agents. Um, with the germline clinical trials uh, for uh, treatment interventions, it's a little bit um, currently not all of them. I think it's a minority. Um, many trials obviously have uh, included germline BRCA1 and 2 mutations for PARP inhibitor therapies, but that's now expanding to some other germline as well, uh, PALP2, for example. Um, but I, I think the, the, the majority of the clinical trials that require some type of molecular testing is really somatic testing for targeted therapies. Yeah. Dr. Robson won the, you know, um, <laughs> nothing to add. I mean, I think trial and it all depends on the trial. And, and, and I agree with Dr. Arun. Most trials do not require genetic testing to go on a trial. There are more and more targeted therapy trials that require somatic testing, but, but not necessarily germline. Not all of them. Yeah. And I, I saw uh, Dr. Robson, you were kind of commenting um, with someone in the chat there. Um, did you want to comment on that just on the, on the show here of what they were talking about? Yeah. I mean, uh, Dr. Chan here is suggesting using, you know, a variety of informatics techniques to, to mine clinical records and, and then provide um provide decision support through the EMR to help with screening people for genetic testing and the like, which I think is a, you know, it's a great idea. Um, unfortunately, well, it's a great idea, period. Right now, most medical records are not structured in such a way that that's necessarily easy to do. We, we've been doing the ACR Genie project, which is a project looking at outcomes for somatic testing. And, and as part of that, in trying to find ways to mine from the medical record, just whether or not genetic testing has been done. And, and it's unbelievably challenging because it goes in all kinds of different places. And most of the reports are PDFs, which can't be scanned. You know, it's just really hard to do. So maybe in the future, when we have the perfect EMR and um, connected nationally to a network of computers that can screen it, then it will work. But for now, I think it's kind of unlikely. Yes. Maybe we'll see phenotypes tips playing, playing a role in that in just terms of EMRs and EHRs and just a lot of them not being designed for us folks in genetics. Um, but exciting to see that there is the technology out there that hopefully we are being able to adapt a little bit more to. Um, anything else before we wrap up? I think somehow we have answered all of the questions coming in. You guys are very efficient today. Uh, so anything else before we close today? No, thank you for the opportunity and you know, this is a very important topic. Yeah, yes, thank you so much. Yeah, you guys have Thank so you. much expertise to provide, and it was just such a treat to be able to ask you all the all the questions that I had too. That you know, I I haven't worked in cancer in a, in a little bit, and when I did, I was a student. So, um, you know, it's very exciting just to hear where we are now, where we're headed in the future in terms of cancer genetics. And for those that are listening live, you'll see a feedback survey in your web browser when this meeting ends and a link to the survey will be emailed to you. Please take a minute to offer feedback and pick topics that you would like to see in upcoming series. So the email will also include a link to the Phenotype Speaker Series page where you can sign up to re receive alerts on upcoming sessions so you know when our next live session is. You can also access all of our previous installments by going to phenotips.com, click the stories tab at the top, and then you'll see the speaker series pop up on the drop-down menu. And again, all the installments are there. You can also search phenotips in your podcast player to listen to it that way. Um, so stay tuned for our upcoming webinars coming in 2022. And if you've enjoyed the, this genetic conversation today, you might also enjoy my other podcast, DNA Today. Um, you can search that on all podcast players or head over to dnapodcast.com. Dr. Arun, Dr. Robson, thank you so much for just providing so much expertise on cancer genetics, where we're headed. Um, I think this is very timely content and I just appreciate you guys could just answer all of my questions. You're really leaders in the field. So it was just so, so great to be able to speak with you guys about this today. So thank you so much for your time, especially the week of uh, American Thanksgiving here. Thank you. Bye-bye. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Bye everybody.